0: This is the Arc Energy Ideas Podcast with Peter Turzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the Arc Energy Ideas Podcast. For November 1, I'm Jackie Forrest.
1: And I'm Peter Tertzakian. Welcome back. Well, today we're going to talk about the state of the oil and gas industry, especially as it relates to finances and drilling activity out in the field. You know, there's a lot of slowdown, a lot of people being thrown out of work in the rural parts of Alberta, northeast B.C., Saskatchewan.
0: Yeah, well, and you know, this year's been a difficult year. We had those very low prices at the end of 2018. So coming into 2019, we had forecast activity levels to be down in the range of 30% in terms of the wells drilled in 2019. Yeah. It's coming in very close to that.
1: Yeah, but it's uh, it's weak. And I yeah. think we need to talk about it. We need to understand what's going on. There's a whole bunch of factors that are at play. So we're going to talk about where the money comes from in the oil and gas business commodity prices, of course, multiplied by the volumes that are sold is uh, is the revenue. We're going to then move into where the money goes. Where does the revenue go? And what's left over is what we call cash flow. And then we're going to take that cash flow and talk about how the investors are viewing it. We've had uh, Eric Nuttall on, oh, I don't know, months, six weeks ago talking about investor sentiment. We're going to have to bring that back into the conversation uh, because whatever's left over gets reinvested back into the ground to the drilling rigs and the other service equipment, and that is the well activity in the field. Mm -hmm, And that drives a
0: lot of the employment in in Western Canada.
1: So we've got a lot of number-heavy stuff here, so we're going to try and, to the extent that we can, keep those numbers light and illustrative from an audio perspective. But I think this is really important to understand, because if we're going to address this issue of unemployment, particularly in the rural parts of Western Canada, We need to sort of of give our audience a a big picture of where the money comes from, where it goes, and what the outlook is.
0: And I want to point out two resources that we'll link to that will help you if you want to understand this topic better. Look at the numbers that we're talking about. Uh, We put out a fiscal pulse we have for some time at the ARC Energy Research Institute that shows the cycle of money that we are going to be going through from producing the oil and gas, getting the revenue, and where all the money goes to, including drilling, We'll post that with the podcast notes. We'll also post a link to our arc charts. We put out a publication each week which shows key metrics around the oil and gas sectors, both globally and here in in Western Canada. The very last page has actually a table that um, isn't maybe always well mm-hmm. recognized, but there's a lot of great data here about the history of the fiscal pulse, the history of the, the revenues, the reinvestment, the yeah. drilling rates. And so look at that last page, page 9 of the PDF of the link. Yeah, that, we've been that publishing that
1: for over 20 years, actually. So if you're in a number junkie go to that page okay where the money comes from as said uh, we sell a lot of upstream products here of diverse nature all the way from the bitumen and the oil sands down to heavy oils medium oil light oils all the way down to condensates and natural gas and if you take the volumes of all those products that are produced BC Alberta and uh, Saskatchewan actually even a little bit from Manitoba and of course there's also uh, some being sold on the East Coast in Newfoundland. That gives you the total revenue of the Canadian oil and gas industry. We're going to focus almost exclusively on Western Canada, where the overwhelming majority of those uh, volumes and revenue come from. So that volume of each of those uh, commodities is multiplied by the price of those volumes. So, Jackie, what's the outlook for price for 2019 and into 2020?
0: Well, we're going to use WTI. And, of course, we have the differential to WTI Mm. here in Western Canada. But that is viewed to actually stay fairly stable with the government curtailment. That's the oil price. In 2018 the average price of WTI was $65 a barrel. Mm -hmm. And this year, year to date, it has been $57 a barrel. And of course, we get a little bit lower with our crude oil differential. If you look at the strip, that's the futures market in terms of what people are willing to Mm -hmm. pay for oil today. If they wanted to lock in price for 2020, it's $52 a barrel. And so just that alone would imply that we're going to see less activity next year. Because all things the same, less oil price means less less revenue. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. So So, uh, as we follow the money, if at the very top line there is a drop in price and if volume stays the same or slightly up, it's it's, it's not going to grow that much in 2020 over 2019. No, we don't
0: expect that. We didn't grow really much from last year. And we don't expect that with the curtailment and the limited takeaway capacity right right now. We're not expecting a lot of growth. I do want to say though, the volume matters. We have increased the production out of Western Canada significantly. So back in 2010, for example, we've doubled our oil sands volumes. We've got about the same amount of conventional volume, but we've got four times more of condensate. So even if price had never changed from... 2010 we'd have mm-hmm. a lot more revenue because right. we're producing more.
1: So that's volume, that's price, you multiply the two together, you get your top line revenue, which is really the source of the money shed for uh, uh, ultimately activity in the field. So oil sands side is going to generate 61 billion, the non-oil sands conventional oil and gas is 53 billion. Put the two together, it's 114. 114 billion is still a huge number. It really is, uh, it's, yeah. Uh, peak, you know, compared to the peak when oil was $100 a barrel and uh, natural gas prices were, I don't know, anywhere from $4 to $6, we were, uh, I think the high watermark was $150 yep.
0: It was $150 a- billion and that was back in 2014.
1: So, we're, we're, we're two-thirds of that, but $114 billion from a national perspective is still a huge amount. I mean, if you look at the auto sector, I think it's $70 billion-ish. I'm looking
0: at some StatsCan data on the value of exports. So, I didn't actually find That's data stress, on yeah. the value of the total revenue, but... I would say that that's probably pretty accurate because Mm -hmm. most of the products that are made are exported. They actually had the oil and gas industry in 2018 at 120 billion. That's a little higher than our number because they include refined product exports. Mm -hmm. We actually export about 600,000 barrels a day of refined products to the US. But compare that, the 120 billion of exports from the oil and gas industry and refineries to autos and auto parts, like you said, 75 billion, pulp and paper, 20 billion. Livestock and animal products, fifteen billion. Yeah, you know, so, so you know,
1: easily, we're you know most average industries in Canada were ten times that size. Yeah, uh, and, and it's it's almost just, double
0: uh, the next biggest auto and auto parts in yeah. terms of the revenue yeah. uh, associated so, but, with exports. but uh, you
1: know, we did see the high watermark, and as we saw the prices fall, now we're in that fifty to sixty dollar range for oil price. Natural gas prices are weak, as we know. We're still. Generating 114 billion, but it is two thirds of what it used to be. And that definitely has had an impact on field activity. But field activity is followed by more than two thirds, and we're going to talk about that. Okay, so where does all that money go? There's four outflows right off the top. Of course, there's general and administrative expenses around $7 billion. That's uh, all the office expenses and just basically your fixed cost of doing business. Royalties, over $8 billion, $8.3 billion. It's stable for now. Uh, Actually, the trend in royalties should go up as these oil sands companies start to continue to pay out over the next five years. That's a whole separate subject on its (laughs) own that I'm not going to get into right now. Interest payments. So, of course, like any industry, there's debt. So, out of that $114 billion of revenue, about four goes to interest. And that's been falling because it has. the interest rates around the world have been falling, and, and also has the debt. yeah, the debt levels yeah. come down. A lot of these companies are paying back the debt, or the banks are demanding they pay back the debt. <laughs> yeah. Then there's the big one. There's the operating expenditures. So this is the cost of operating all those wells in the field that are producing, whether it's oil, gas, oil sands facilities, facilities. Forty two point six billion, almost forty three billion dollars. So you're looking at about thirty five to forty percent of that top line revenue number goes to just operating costs.
0: And I think it's really an important piece and we focus a lot on the CapEx Mm-hmm. CapEx spending of the industry, the new capital expenditures, everyone talks about that. But we have to remember that that the operating expenditures today are actually bigger than our capital expenditures. In the Western Canada, we'll get to it. The capital expenditures are more like 32 billion.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And this is a huge part of our economy. A lot of this is actually spent on supplies, materials, operating staff. Like this really yeah, does the generate is huge. Yeah, the a ton kind of jobs in the province. And it's more constant, mm-hmm. obviously, because as long as we have the production, those jobs come each year.
1: That's right. Okay. And well, I think it's important to talk a little bit about the trends. So the conventional side, so this is not the oil sands business, okay? not the oil sands business, uh, is relatively stable in its costs, about $23 billion a year. Hasn't really been falling as much as we'd like to see it fall, but it is uh, at least it's not going up like it used to be.
0: Mm-hmm. It's been very stable, so you know we'd like it to see it fall in the prospect that those oil and gas companies would be more profitable mm-hmm. and become more efficient and we haven't interestingly seen that now the oil sands has been quite different that has been trending down
1: now in part that is falling natural gas prices, but that is not the exclusive story I mean it's just the efficiencies, operational efficiencies that the oil sands producers have necessarily been bringing into their operations, treating it much more like a manufacturing operation to bring down costs and also emissions as a consequence. And that really is a big story that is not well recognized.
0: No, it's not. And um, Steve Lott talked about the fact he thinks mm-hmm. that on the oil sands side, they could even reduce the costs further.
1: Yeah, uh, I think it's going to go lower. So again, we've started with 114000000000 billion. We've taken out Operating costs and fixed costs, that's $64 billion. So, we're left with 50, $50 billion of what we call cash flow. And so, let's talk about how that compares to history.
0: Right. So, in 2019, this year, we expect that this number, $50 billion, will be the highest level since 2014. So, from that perspective, we're doing pretty well. It was $72 billion in 2014. But it's important to remember, and you can look at our arc charts, the last page, to see all these numbers – That before that, if we looked at the period from 2010 to 2013, it was about $50 billion back then too. Uh, We didn't get all the advantages of higher oil prices in that period because we had constraints in our takeaway capacity and we had some bigger discounts there. Hmm. Right now, the cash flow coming out of the industry is not that different than that higher price period, which is amazing.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. And that is attributable to this drop in the operating costs of the oil sands.
0: Well, and the higher volumes. And the higher
1: volumes. Yeah, those two things. So there's a combination of the two things. Actually, from what we call the fiscal pulse as a a metaphor for health, the fiscal pulse from a cash flow of the entire industry is as healthy as it was when the price of oil was $100 a barrel. Now, that doesn't necessarily tell you. It doesn't feel that way. It doesn't feel that way at all. (laughs) And it doesn't feel, and certainly there's a lot of differences in the patient underneath that we want to talk about. But the uh, that fall in the costs of the oil sands and increases has really created a lot of surplus cash flow that historically would have been invested back into the operations of the industry. But now we have a blockage, right? We've, we've, we've got a blockage in the pulse, uh, artery blockage, because it's not going back into the ground. A lot of it is not going back to the investors.
0: That's right. And you can see that in our... Last page of our arc charts, you can look at the after-tax cash flow versus the level of reinvestment. And historically, we've almost always reinvested even more than our cash flow. And this year and the last few years, we've been not investing as much. So we're yeah. not investing all of that 50 billion.
1: Yeah. And so the change in the invested sentiment is something that we have discussed on several shows. But I think it's really important to understand that the money is being allocated more to share buybacks. Mm -hmm. allocated more to dividends and therefore the money is being siphoned out of the system. And that's really problematic from uh, a reinvestment standpoint.
0: Right. So, you know, the investors are saying, give me more money back. But there's only so much money. So if the investors want more money back, then less is going to go towards new capital spending. That's right. just how the math works. And we can talk a little bit about some of the trends. They're quite significant in terms of investors getting their money back. Yeah. We did a chart that looked at the combination of share buybacks and dividends. Dividends have been more flat over this period, but share buybacks have really increased. And right now, they're trending together to be almost four to $5 billion a quarter. This is for all companies that are... Registered as Canadian companies, so it includes in Canada and some companies that generally would spend some of their money outside of Canada. So it's not just coming out of the Canadian industry. I want to be clear on that, but it is trending about four to five billion a quarter, which is sixteen to twenty billion a year of money that's leaving mm-hmm. the cycle and right. going back to yeah. investors.
1: Now, to be fair, some of the the average baseline of dividends was probably two billion ish per quarter. Yes, an that's An escalation right. of money back to investors to $5 billion. that incremental $3 billion is really significant because three times four for the full year is $12 billion. $12 billion not put back into the ground forfeits a lot of activity and investment. And I think it's also important to know that there's a double whammy occurring here because historically investors would top up cash flow with more debt and more equity investment to the tune of 10 to $15 billion a year. Mm-hmm. Right, so that's basically fallen to almost zero
0: so far in 2019. One billion of One. equity and debt has been raised by the Canadian industry. As you say, historically it would be ten to fifteen, 15. billion. So yep.
1: not only do we have the top up gone, so that's uh, I'm just going to put in ten to twelve billion dollars. We also have twelve billion dollars of cash flow going out the back door. So added up together, that's twenty four billion dollars that uh is not going back into the ground.
0: Yeah, back that, in that 2014 and be- before period, right. you know, we had the same cash flow but we were getting augmented by the fact that we had this other sources of capital and we weren't giving much money to investors. Mm-hmm. So that's why it feels very different.
1: It feels very yeah. different. And I think it's important to restate some of the factors that have contributed to this big change. So you know, why is it that the investors have changed their sentiment? We've talked about the fact that there's uncertainty about the future of oil and gas prices. In other words, there's unease that the prices would hang in the $50 to $60 range. Certainly, there's not a lot of belief that it's going to $80 or $90 again. There's that. There's uncertainty about whether or not the industry can make money. We've talked about that with Eric Nettle when he was on the show show me the money, show me that you're making money over the long term. Now, a lot of these companies are because they're forced to, but historically, they really haven't. Uncertainty about climate change policy and pipelines, there's no question that it has had a negative effect, effectively raising what we call the cost of capital and the propensity for investors to want to put money into the space. Uncertainty in the political climate, we just did a show on that. And so, uncertainty, 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 it all adds up. And There you go. Uh, The investor sentiment not only dries up from the perspective of putting money into the Mm -hmm. business, it actually is saying, I want to take money out of the business. And I think this is really an an, an important thing is that the financial sentiment and the investor dynamics are interestingly adjusting to a reality of almost saying we're, we're hitting peak demand. Keep your production flat because we're not going to be demanding anymore. But you and I know that, I mean, demand continues to grow at a million plus barrels per day.
0: Yeah, I mean, it could be that they're thinking that, but it also could be that if if I believe the price of oil is going to stay in the low 50s forever, which I think a lot of investors do believe, then I'm not going to get, by holding your stock, I'm not going to get a return just by expecting the price of oil to go up and my Mm -hmm. value of my stock to go up. And so you're going to have to prove to me you can give me some dividends or share buybacks so that I get a return for holding your stock. It's not going to come from growth anymore. It's no. not going to come from price right. appreciation. It's going to come
1: from making money. And so
0: I think, you know, I don't, it could be demand kind of longer term that they're worried about, but I think just immediately they're worried more about the price and mm-hmm. the fact that it stays low doesn't mean they're going to do well holding your stock.
1: No, yeah. no. We're going to talk about this more on future podcasts, but this situation, this, this, Fairly rapid change in investor sentiment over the course of it's basically been 18 months and really acute over the last six months really has some profound implications for the industry, not only here in Canada, it's happening in the US too.
0: Yeah, right. I wanted to say it's not just about pipeline uncertainty because in the US, companies are being asked not to grow and to give the money back. And right. so it's it's not a pipeline constraint. More more, I think it's an investor constraint that we're seeing in all publicly right. traded oil and gas companies. Right.
1: Interesting though, it is forcing the industry to be more innovative, to be able to live within their cash flow, which creates a much more efficient business. So we'll see how that plays out, because it's a very interesting dynamic. I always tell people the Canadian oil and gas industry has been living with the lowest oil prices and the lowest natural gas prices in the world. That's the bad news for the industry. The good news is is that it is forcing us to be much more competitive and efficient. And that is, I think, going to serve us really well as we go into the 2020s.
0: Yeah, I mean, the only source of capital you have as a company is your own cash flow. So you can't get more money from the external markets, you can't get more money from the debt market. So the only thing you can do is cut your operating expenditures, cut your capex to allow you to have more money to give the investors back.
1: And from a financial perspective, it's easy to say all that. But from a human perspective, it is really not very good. And the activity is being cut in the field. And that affects a lot of lives and employment across the Western Canadian sedimentary basin. And, And so I want to talk about that as we come to the end of our show, field activity is way down.
0: Yes, and I think we will post a chart of this to show, we have a chart that shows the drilling rates through the year, month by month, and we compare it to other years. Mm -hmm. Um, And as I said, about 30% down year on year which is kind of what we expect at the beginning of the year but one thing that we didn't expect is we thought that as the second half of the year progressed as people got more comfortable with the government's curtailment that prices became maybe more stable you know and they have arguably been in a pretty tight range this year that we would see the drilling rates kind of trend up a little bit higher instead they're actually coming down and following the 2016 line and 2016 was a terrible year we drilled 4,000 wells in western Canada which is the lowest level in decades. For comparison, this year we're expecting about 5,100 wells. And so it's not a good sign that we're starting to see that activity kind of trend along that lower line.
1: So it's not a good situation. It's, it's, it's low. I, I, I don't think we can represent that uh, this winter is going to get any better in terms of the factors that we see at play in terms of following the money all the way through to activity. But maybe we can conclude by posing the question, well, what will make things change?
0: Just for context, though, in 2018, not that long ago, we drilled almost 7,000 wells in Western Canada. This year, as I said, closer to 5,000. You know, next year, who knows? I think it's going to be closer to 2016. I hope it's not below it. I hope Mm -hmm. it's still above it. But it it does, especially looking at the price of oil right now, which is the number one indicator, right? That's going to dictate your cash flow because you don't have growth in volumes in general. Uh, It doesn't look like it's going to come in nearly that high based on the current futures Mm -hmm. uh, market. As price changes, I think that level of activity will change. Yeah. And if prices start to increase, we would see that. Or the other lever is if operating costs could be reduced further to generate operating more cash flow. costs.
1: And, and there's some... Interesting questions as we look into 2020, 2021, and that is what is it, what are these oil sands companies going to do with their their cash flow? Yeah, that's
0: an important point, Peter. So when we look at the fiscal pulse, the numbers that we've been talking about mainly have been combining the oil sands and the non-oil sands. It's the oil sands guys are actually generating much more free cash flow beyond their CapEx. So they're generating about $32 billion or $33 billion of cash flow, and only 12 billion of that is going into capital projects. Right. And the oil sands are quite unique compared to the non oil sand side of the industry because they don't have decline rates. Mm-hmm. Like their wells don't decline at the same pace. So they don't need to invest as much money to keep their production level, right. which gives them a lot of additional cash flow. Now, today, that's going towards debt repayment and paying shareholders back. But I do believe when we get some visibility in terms of new takeaway capacity from Western Canada, that we'll see some of that cash flow go back into reinvestment in Western Canada. And for instance, Imperial has that project called Aspen, Aspen. you know, that they had uh, talked about going forward, but they've delayed it now. I do believe if there's pipelines, we'll see some additional jobs there.
1: Yeah, and we might see these companies also spend more money in the midstream. And uh, those are also high-paying jobs in terms of the mm-hmm. value-added things and so on. You know, as we look forward, I'm confident that we're still going to be producing the same amount of volumes. What is it, 5.7 million barrels? Well, 4.4 billion.
0: million barrels a day of crude oil, and then we also yeah. have about 15 BCF or 16 BCF and, per day and of and gas. And
1: natural gas is going to go up. By virtue of the LNG over the next few years, and I so agree. we're still going to be a huge producer of oil and gas, but the way we produce it, the way it's distributed and marketed is going to look a lot different as we go into the 2020s. So stay tuned, it's, a, mm-hmm. it's an ever-changing economy, it's an ever-changing fiscal pulse. The pulse has got issues at the moment, maybe not beating as fast as, uh, as it has been historically, but uh, there is a path to health hopefully going forward.
0: Good. Well, thank you for joining this podcast. If you liked it, please rate us on your app and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.